Welcome to First Importance, featuring the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist West Memphis. We're so happy you've chosen to listen, and we pray that you'll be blessed by this message. Well, if you have your Bibles, I would like to invite you to join me in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Since the month of August, we have been going through this book together. How wonderful of a time we have had during uh, this study together. We've been looking at God's epic work in us. And so I hope that this has been as much of a blessing to you as it has been to me. Ephesians chapter 3. There are many great prayers that are recorded in the Bible by many different, many different people. Prayers that are unique to us, that stand out because both the content and the character of the prayer and of the prayer are so strong. I think of prayers throughout the scripture that stand out to me, such as the prayer of Moses in Exodus chapter 32. Don't turn there with me right now. We don't have time. But in Exodus chapter 32, Moses is standing on top of Mount Sinai, and God is giving to him the law and is making a pledge to him and to the people of Israel. When all of a sudden, God stops giving the law, and he looks to Moses, and he says, Moses, your people, my people at the base of this mountain have abandoned me. Though I have taken them out of the land of Egypt, though I have taken them out of slavery, though I have gotten rid of Pharaoh's army and they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, and though I met their every need here at the base of this mountain, they are being faithless and they have created an idol and they are worshiping it and God tells Moses now I am going to get rid of Israel these people for good and I'm going to raise from you Moses a great nation Moses is burdened heavy in his heart and in Exodus chapter 32 he prays out to God these people who constantly complain to Moses I mean, every time he turned around, they weren't getting enough food. They weren't getting enough water. They weren't comfortable. They would have been better off dead in slavery in Egypt. And Moses stands up for these people. And to God, he prays and intercedes for them and begs for their lives. That's a beautiful prayer. And in your study this week, I hope that you will make your way to Exodus chapter 32 and read that great prayer. Or you could go to Jonah's prayer. Remember, Jonah had rebelled against God and decided not to obey the command to go and preach to Nineveh. And so he found himself in the belly of a great fish. And from that belly, he prayed one of the greatest prayers in all of the scripture as he cried out to God for forgiveness and spoke to God of his great faithfulness. I think of the prayer of Jabez in 1 Chronicles in chapter 4, or perhaps the prayer that Daniel prayed uh, both in the lion's den as he was going into the lion's den. I think of the prayer of the, the three Hebrew children who were thrown into the fiery furnace. And then as we make our way into the New Testament, I think of Matthew chapter 6, the model prayer, where God himself taught us how we are to pray. And then over in John chapter 15, excuse me, John chapter 17, where Jesus is about to go to the cross and he prays that great high priestly prayer where he says, Lord, glorify me now 
And he prays for unity for his people. And then, of course, I think of John's prayer at the end of Revelation, perhaps the shortest and sweetest prayer in all of Scripture. Revelation at the very end, John calls out after seeing all the things that are to come, he says what? Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Among all of these great prayers of the Bible and the, and the, and the precedent that they set, I think that the passage that we read today is one of those great prayers, a prayer that we should use as a church and a prayer that is very important. The title of today's message was Paul's Prayer for the Church at Ephesus. But allow me today to entitle this message, My Prayer for Us. If you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, hear now the word of the Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with his power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would now use the power of your gospel to preach to this weak preacher. It's in the name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen. Our passage today is a unique and wonderful passage. It serves as a hinge for the book of Ephesians. Uh, the whole book will really turn on these few verses because you see during chapters 1 through 3, we are really concentrating on content and on the theology, on the good news of Jesus Christ. We are, con we, are, we are faced with a lot of information and wonderful information. But as we turn the page from chapter 3 through the end of the book, we are concerned with practical living, what the gospel, what the effects of the gospel are on the believer. Uh, through Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, we learned a lot of wonderful things, didn't we? Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, we uh, are opened up to this book by Paul saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That was our starting point. Okay, that was where we were as believers. We are blessed by the Father with every spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenly places. And chapter 1 is an unfolding of that glorious statement that from the beginning of time, before time even began, God had you on his mind. And he was working out salvation and working out redemption and working out all these glorious truths of the gospel. We see this all throughout chapter 1. The Father working before time, Jesus coming into time and space and, and taking, upon our, taking upon his shoulders the weight of our sin. 
There, toward the end of chapter 1, we see not only what God the Father had done in eternity past, what Jesus has done in our time, but we see what the Holy Spirit is doing in our salvation in the future. And chapter 1 is rich with information for those of us who are believers. We moved to chapter 2. And chapter 2 clued us in as to why the gospel is so good. Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 1, we are informed that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That each of us were born spiritually dead, without spiritual pulse, without ability to worship the Lord, without ability to have fellowship with the Lord. We were separated from Him spiritually dead. All that we could ever do, all that the world could ever provide is following that same pattern which Satan has blazed for us, a, a pattern of sin and deception. And then in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 2, we learned that not only did we have a bad starting point when we were born, we were born spiritually dead, but we had a very bad ending because we learned that we were children of wrath, which means that we rightly deserve the wrath of God. The wrath of God now and the wrath of God to come by placing us. We do not deserve to have life at all. Our sin against a holy God has merited us eternal separation from him in a place called hell. That's where we were, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But then verse 4 came, but God. But God, being rich in the great love that he had for us while we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. What a glorious truth. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he has made us alive together in Christ. The end of chapter 2 says not only were we dead, but made alive, but we were far off, and God has brought us near. And all of this is really summed up in these first couple words in verse 14 when Paul is praying and he says, for this reason. Well, what reason, Paul? For everything I just told you. For how the gospel has worked in you and how it's been this grand mystery and how in chapter 3 Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise that God has ever made. Paul says, because of the gospel and its work in my life, I must pray. And here is his prayer for the church. And friends, let me just say this. I believe Paul is going to set today for us, by the Spirit, a template for how we should pray for one another. And not just how we should pray for one another, but how God desires that his people not just be scholars and know about him, but that we should be people who experience him. Be people who walk with him. And so today, let me give you just five requests that Paul is going to make in this prayer. And I want you to use it as your prayer this week for your family and for your friends. I want you to notice, before we get to these five points, that when Paul is given an opportunity to pray in Scripture, it's almost never about physical things. There's nothing wrong with praying about physical things. God wants us to pray for those uh, uh, physical problems that we have and for things that are going on in our life. Those are all important. But for Paul, when he had an opportunity to voice prayer, it was about spiritual things. It was about things that lasted. So look at these five requests that Paul is going to make. Look with me first in verse 16, where we see his first request is strength. If you're taking notes and you want to pray this week 
for those who are in your church and for those who you love, the first thing Paul prays for is strength. Look with me in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about being strong. Oftentimes, as Christians, we've put out this misnomer that, that weakness is, that spiritual weakness is something that, that is a, a, an admirable quality. But that's not so. The Bible commands us to be spiritually strong. And yes, it is true that in our weakness, God's strength is perfected. The Bible still commands us to be strong. Joshua 1.9 is that hallmark passage for us. When the Bible commands us to be spiritually strong, we go back to Joshua. When God commands him at the death of Moses in verse 9 of chapter 1, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God has commanded us to be strong. It's not an option. I know it feels a lot easier to give up, doesn't it, church? It feels a lot easier to sit down in the hole that we've dug and just cry, just to give up. But God has commanded us to be strong. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 30, Paul reminds us to be strong again. He says in verse 13, actually, be watchful and stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. The scripture commands us to be strong, but that is not what Paul is talking about in this passage today. While we are commanded to be strong, what Paul is saying is, I want you, church, to experience a power that you can't muster up on your own. Because the power that you can muster up, the power that you can discipline yourself and work hard for, the Bible tells us to discipline ourselves for godliness. All of that power that you can muster up by the Spirit is little compared to what I'm praying for. What he's praying for is a power that comes from without. A power that's not based upon your can-do-it attitude. A power that's not based upon your ability. Paul is praying for the church. He is praying for us. We should pray for one another that we be strong. And here he gives us the measure, the agent, and the focus of that strength. Look, first of all, at the measure. He says, according to his riches in glory. According to the riches of his glory is the words that are used in this passage. This is now the sixth time that Paul has used the word riches in this passage. Six times. That's why the book of Ephesians is a treasure trove for Christians. It tells us of how rich our God is. We've learned that he is rich in grace. Aren't you glad God is rich in grace? The Bible says that he is rich in mercy, and no one is more glad that God is rich in mercy than the one who is standing before you today. The Bible has gone on about his, how he is rich in love. In the, the book of Ephesians, we see he is rich in power. But here, when talking about how we are to be strengthened, he says that he is praying that it happens in accordance with what? The riches of his glory. Glory is a strange term for us. It's the outpouring of God's goodness. And the, the only way I know to describe this to you, and the only way that I can understand it with my simple mind, is when you go outside today and you look up at the sun, if the clouds have parted, you're going to see the sunlight. And you're going to feel the warmth on your face. And you're going to know that all around you, things are benefiting because 
of that light that's coming from the sun. But that light is not actually the sun itself. It's what's coming from the sun. In the same way, the Bible says of God's glory that it's his outshining of his goodness. That's why when Isaiah is in the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter 6, the angels are singing of God and they say, the whole earth is filled with his glory. The outpouring of his goodness. And so Paul says, I'm going to pray for power for you, church, and I'm going to pray for it. I could pray for it in accordance with the riches of his grace, and that would be good. I could pray for it in accordance with the riches of his mercy or his love, and it would be good. But let me tell you something. I'm going to pray for strength from you, for you, in accordance with the riches of his glory. The outpouring of his goodness. We could not exist if the sun were not there. Nothing could live, nothing could survive. We have all our energy from that in the same way. It is the same way with God. He is praying here that we be empowered by the riches of his glory. If that's the measure, I gotta tell you something. If we as a church had that, you would notice, right? If we as God's church were empowered by that same uh, uh, avenue here, if we as a church had the same measure, that is a lot of power. Look at the measure. He says, according to his riches and glory. But look at nextly at the agent. He says that we would be, uh, according to his riches and glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. The church today is so ineffective and so weak and so powerless because we have negated our responsibility to the Holy Spirit. We've grieved the Holy Spirit. We do it by focusing on anything but the gospel, making politics our God. We do it through everything else, the sin in our lives. We, we grieve him as Baptists. We've altogether tried to cut that out for not wanting to look like other, uh, other people that perhaps we may disagree with. But the scripture makes it very clear that God applies salvation to us through his Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not a child of his. The question is not whether or not you as a believer have the Holy Spirit. The question is, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? How much of you does he have? And here we are told that the, that the medium of our strength, the agent of bringing that strength to us is the Holy Spirit. The scripture says in Acts 1-8 that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Then he says, not just the measure and the agent, but this is the focus of our strength. Where is it? In the inner man. A lot of us here today are concerned with our health. I hope that you take proper precautions and you wash your hands, you wear face masks when you can. I hope that you take all those proper precautions. And we, we as people want to be good stewards of the bodies that God has given us. We, we feed our bodies, don't we? Some of us feed our bodies better food than others. Some, like me, eat more food, perhaps, than others. Uh, we, we feed our bodies. We want to make sure that they have strength, some of us, some of you work out more than other of you, right? I'm not going to start pointing fingers. I'm just going to move on past that point as quickly as possible. But the fact is, we care about our bodies. We take care of them. We want to be physically strong. But here, when it comes to the strength of God, God wants to apply it to what? The inner man. The inner man. Your soul. Your spirit. Why? 
Because you can be on death's door. You can have the very last breath that you have in your lungs, and your body can be weak, riddled with disease, but your inner man can be strong, can be vibrant, can keep going, will keep going. Here, the scripture says uh, uh, that Paul, Paul is praying that we would be strengthened in our inner man, strengthened where it counts. And that should be the prayer of the church for one another. Lord, would you strengthen us by your spirit in our inner man? But he moves on in verse 17 from the prayer request of strength to fellowship. And there's a correlation. You see, because we must have the strength to have this fellowship that is mentioned in verse 17. Look with me in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul's desire for God's church is not that they would just be status quo Christians. Not that they would just be Sunday morning Christians. Not that they would just have the right political ideals. But his idea for believers is that they would be consumed with fellowship with the God of the universe. Here we're told that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. That's his prayer for us. That's our prayer, should be our prayer for one another, that Christ would dwell in our hearts. John 14, 23 says, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. You know, when you ask Jesus into your heart, those of you who are born-again believers today, when you ask Jesus into your heart, you ask for forgiveness from your sins and committed yourself to the lordship of Jesus. Jesus took up residence in your life. He did. Here, we're used, the, the reference here is making home in our heart. And he's, he is there. But you know, I got a feeling that a lot of so-called Christians, a lot of people who perhaps are even listening today, they're okay with house guest Jesus. They're okay with weekend visits Jesus. They're okay with every once in a while a knock on the door, friendly, how do you do, neighbor Jesus. But most people don't want, hey, I'm coming to your house to stay, Jesus. Like I'm in here because he's fine until he starts rearranging things. And then you're like, this house is too small for the both of us. But you see, Jesus doesn't come in your house to live, to leave it the way it is, because it's a sty in there, okay? Y'all get what I'm saying? It's a pigsty in there. It's rough. Our heart is evil. Our heart is wicked. And when Jesus comes in, he's not satisfied with the way that we have arranged things. And so he goes into the kitchen of our heart, and he sees what we've been consuming. How about that lust and that gossip? How about that lying? How about that pride? How about those sins that you are consuming each and every day? And he cleans out that refrigerator and he says, here's the bread of my body. Here is the, the juice of my blood that was spilled for you. Take me, I'm real food. All of this junk is nasty. It's not good for you. It's going to kill you. I can't stay in this house like this. We got to get you on a better diet. And then he comes into our living room, the things that we've been comfortable with, the things that we surround ourselves with. And he goes, no, no, no. This ain't going to work. If I'm to be in this home, it's got to reflect my lordship. You see, I'm either lord of all or I'm not lord at all. 
Paul prays that we may be strengthened so that Jesus would dwell, not just the Sundays, not just the Wednesdays, but every day, every moment of every day. Don't you want that, believers? Aren't you sick and tired of just the status quo American believer? Aren't you just sick and tired of being that person who when the going gets tough, you really start to question whether there's a, a God at all or why God would have the audacity, the God of the universe, why he would have the audacity to do with your life as he wishes. Aren't you tired of status quo Christianity here? And don't you desire what Paul prays for the church here, that we'd be strengthened so Christ would dwell He would be there in our hearts working with us. Don't you wish that you'd wake up every morning praying, thanking God for the day? And as you're pursuing the day, you're talking to him about the things of the day. And as you end, he's the last thing on your mind. Isn't that the desire of his church? And that's Paul's prayer for the church. He prays that they would have fellowship through faith. They would have Christ dwelling in them. Thirdly, I want you to see Paul prays not only for strength and for fellowship, but he prays for comprehension. Let's go right before verse 18 to the last part of verse 17. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You see, there's a process here. We are strengthened by the Holy Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell there, and as Christ dwells there, his fruit, the good things that comes from his lordship in our lives, start to overflow. And the first of that is a comprehension so that we would be rooted and grounded in love. This is the love of Jesus, not the pseudo-love that the world sells today that has to do with what pleases you. That is not love. Love is clearly defined for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's clearly defined for us throughout the Gospels as we see Jesus live and die and raise again. But this love is altogether different from what the world has to offer. And we are given here the prayer that we would comprehend it. People all around the world care about comprehending things. They want to understand the mysteries of the universe. This year, I'm sure even millions and billions of dollars will be spent by our own country as probes go further and further into the outer reaches of outer space past our solar system, taking pictures and taking data and sending it back to Uh, uh, sending them back to NASA. People long to know what's out there. The further we go, how can we learn more? We long to comprehend things. If you watched uh, ESPN yesterday, you watched any of your favorite football teams, Whoopig Suey, if you watched any of your favorite football teams yesterday, no doubt there was someone who came up on the sideline or there were a reporter in, in the studio and they began to list off all these stats. Now, what these stats have to do with anything that's going on in the game is really beyond me. Uh, We don't need to know what so-and-so ran 40 years ago and how that has reference to how we're going to win this game today. But you'll see people who have these stats memorized. They can tell you, I mean, everything. 
about the statistics of sports. That's all good and fine. There are those who are academics who could tell you the same in their fields of history and literature. But of all those things that you can comprehend, perhaps the greatest thing that we could ever comprehend is God's love. You know, every good parent wants our, we want our children to know how much we love them, don't we? They can't understand. No one will love our children like we love our children. That's a hard pill to swallow, but it's absolutely true. No one on this earth, at least, can love our children like we, and so we try to find ways to show them that we love them, but in the end, they can never really fully understand. Only the older they get, the more that they will understand, and it reminds me of this story that John MacArthur told about J. Wilbur Chapman, who was a preacher. A man came to one of his revival meetings and gave this testimony, and so I want to give it to you today. This man who was lost and got saved at this revival had said, I got off at the Pennsylvania Depot as a tramp, and for a year I begged on the streets for a living. One day I touched a man on the shoulder and said, Hey, mister, can you give me a dime? And as soon as I saw his face, I was shocked to see that it was my own father. So I said, Father, Father, do you know me? Throwing his arms around me, and with tears in his eyes, he said, Oh, my son, at last I found you. I found you. You want a dime, but everything I have is yours. Think of it, he said. I was a tramp. I stood begging my own father for 10 cents. When for 18 years, he had been looking for me to give me all that he had. You know, the Lord longs for us to comprehend what is incomprehensible to the world, and that is his love. We sang about it just a few moments ago. Can you fathom it? How deep, how wide, how, how great is his love for us, and yet Christ dwells in our hearts and causes us to comprehend that love. And if you know that God loves you in such a way, you don't care what the world has to say about you. If you know that God loves you, then let the whole world think that you're an idiot. Let the whole world hate you, because who cares? I understand, I comprehend the love that God has for me. If you comprehend the love that God has for you, you don't ask those most difficult questions. Why did God allow this in my life? Why is 2020 the worst year ever? You don't ask, why? Because I understand he loves me, and there's no better truth out there than that. You're loved by the God of the universe. You were an enemy. I was an enemy of his. I was dead in my sins. I do not deserve to be loved by him. We do not deserve grace. We do not deserve mercy. And yet, he is now giving us the opportunity to comprehend his incomprehensible love. That's Paul's prayer for us. That's my prayer for you. That should be our prayer for one another. Look with me at the end of verse 19 is we see that not only does he pray for us for strength and for fellowship and for comprehension, but we see that he prays for filling. Look in verse 19, the very end, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It seems like he used that word too many times. But what he's saying is that there's no part of me that there's not all of him in. That's his, that's his prayer, that, 
Being strengthened by his spirit in the inner man, Christ would dwell in us, cause us to comprehend his love, and fill us with all of him. What a representative the church would be to the world of Jesus if this were our prayer in concert to him, if this were our prayer for one another, if this were our desire, if we for one moment took our eyes off the physical things of this world and we aimed our prayers wholeheartedly at this, how it would change things. He tells us here, I'm praying that you would be filled with the fullness of God. And we don't have time here today to go into great de detail about that. So let's move to our fifth and final point where his prayer for us, it may not seem it directly, but his prayer for us in verse 20 and following is that we would have the right desire. Desire. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This prayer ends with a song. It ends with this exclamation point of, God, how, how good you are. And the very end of the prayer indicates to us that it is God's desire that we would desire his glory. You know, everyone's worried about what's good for them. God's glory is our good. God's glory is your good. You should desire, it should be the church's desire. Let me die in the streets out here on Missouri Street. Let me, for, don't paint a picture of me, forget my name, forget I ever existed. Don't visit my, my cemetery plot. Don't think about my name ever again, but remember Jesus. That should be our desire. Don't remember me Remember Jesus. Glorify him. Because I'm going to be gone one day, and that's good. I'm going to be in the earth where my body will be. I'm going to be up in heaven. It's going to be a good time. No mask, no COVID up there. It's going to be great. But what matters is his glory, not mine. When I gave my life to him, when he took my life, I said, I want you to have the glory and not me. And in the verse 20, it says something wonderful. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. This is our theme verse for the year. When I think about God giving himself glory, I know that there's no cause too great for our God. What's the most I can imagine for my life? What's the most amount of good I can imagine for First Baptist Church West Memphis? It doesn't even tip the iceberg as to what God can do barely scrapes the surface do you look at our world and mourn or do you believe that God can save this city and this state and this nation do you believe that God can do it I'm here to tell you that we have a God who can do far more than anything we can ask or think anything that we can imagine and so this is Paul's prayer for us and this is my prayer for you and I hope that you'll take this home this week and this will be your prayer for one another, that we be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in the inner man, that we would have fellowship with Jesus as he dwells in our hearts, that we would be able to comprehend the great love that he has for us, that we would be filled with the fullness of God, and that we would desire his glory above our own. Would you pray with me, please? Thank you for joining us for this episode of First Importance. We invite you to check out our other sermons on this podcast 
and to join us in person on Sunday at 8.30 or 11 a.m., as well as streaming live on Facebook and YouTube on Sundays at 11 a.m. We hope to see you soon at First Baptist West Memphis, where we love God, care for one another, and share the gospel.